Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the Maleko and Flash podcast. I'm Maleko. Hey, I'm Flash. <laughs> we're welcome to our uh, Wednesday show here today. We've got a double book show for you. Uh, we're going to start things off by giving you your, your uh, coronavirus update here uh, from our favorite emergency room doctor that we love to see when we're not actually sick. Uh, give it up uh, for Dr. Dara O'Carroll. <laughs> Uh, who is back with us again. Garrett, great talking with you, man. Thanks for coming in. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me again, guys. Uh, that's kind of you. Yes, I never like to see anybody I know while at work. So it's good to see you not there. Now, since we've talked uh, on the podcast last, you, uh, you, you were very, very generous. You helped us open the show uh, for our Living Room Live concert series, which is uh, now an eight-week concert series. So we appreciate that. Uh, and you've been busy. You, uh, you've been watching what's been going on in the news. You've been following uh, what, uh, what medical professionals across the country have been saying and what our president has been saying. And you had a response to that that was published today in USA Today. And we'll talk about that. Um, first of all, what, what prompted you to decide you needed to write an, uh, an op-ed? Um, I think as, as always, and what's been the, the case since uh, this started was that there's just a lot of misinformation uh, going on. And I like to, the analogy I like to say is that I'm not an engineer, but if, um, if I was to instruct a building uh, civil engineer in the building of a, of a bridge and I said, hey, put this cable in the wrong place, I hope somebody would speak up and be like, no, you're gonna hurt somebody or this, this is not the right move. And so well, the main tenant of the Hippocratic Oath, which we all take as, as physicians and healthcare providers uh, prior to even entering our training is one of the tenets is do no harm. And I'm rooting for all of our leaders. I really am. And uh, I just want them to make wise decisions. But when you start one musing about things that are harmful, like disinfectants and UV light, because people will try those things. And I've seen even before our leaders suggest those, they've tried them. Um, and then two, a dangerous medication that can be very, very harmful without the accurate science. And from day one, there wasn't any convincing science um, behind hydroxychloroquine, which is what most of that, uh, that article was about. And then thirdly, to remove our, one of our main guys, uh, Dr. Rick Wright, um, who I would say is just as important as Anthony Fauci, he's just not as public. Um, was kind of the last straw in my mind, and uh, I just what what was... role did he play, um, Dr. O'Carroll? Oh yeah, uh, uh, Rick Wright. So I interviewed him and Fauci for that uh, Netflix documentary that I was uh, a medical consultant on, and both of them had the same sort of attitude. Like, look, we've been doing this just like Fauci. He's been doing this since he was in grad school, and he's not as old as Fauci. He's I think in his mid fifties, somewhere around there but he's dedicated his whole life to pandemic research. And what he's the head of is, or was now, is the director of uh, BARDA, uh, Bio Advanced Research Department Association. It's basically uh, taking the very high tech uh, microbiologic uh, weapons that we have against this virus, taking the most promising horses in that race and finishing and rushing them to the finish line to success and being able to mass produce. And one other interesting thing that actually didn't make the article, uh, just because it needed to be pared down word-wise, was that when this vaccination does come to fruition, if it is a vaccination that does need to use eggs, which not all vaccinations do need to use eggs, because basically you inject 
like an attenuated virus into an egg and then it kind of populates itself and then becomes a large vaccination that you can give to somebody else. If the, uh, whatever horse wins, whatever vaccination does happen to need you- Touched to his play. face. <sighs> he touched his face, put it on the board. Right. What, what right. are we doing that already? I didn't even realize. Uh, I didn't even know we were doing it either. That was, uh, all right, well. <laughs> all right, well. Don't lie. You, you, you post up with the, with the blank whiteboard behind you. This was the plan uh, all along. Well, I have something to talk about later, but. Uh, hold on, hold on, okay. So this class <laughs> is interrupting us like a child interrupting adults having conversation. Let's stop the conversation here for a second. Let's, let's talk about cocktails. Uh, what are you drinking today, Dr. O'Carroll? Water. <laughs> just water. Water. Just water. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll just, just pretend that that's uh, that's chilled vodka. Flash, what you got? Mm -hmm. I'm uh I'm down to the bottom of the barrel of my. In fact, I threw the I threw the bottle away because I poured the last of it in here. Uh, the last of that giant bottle of uh, bullet bourbon. This is it? Boy, that went that went farther than I thought it would. You were almost done with that in like a week, three weeks ago. Slow down, well, man. <laughs> Well, I got sidetracked by other alcohol besides bullet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we got some cocktails here. What should our word of the day be today, Dr. O'Carroll? Word of the day? Ooh, uh, how about remdesivir? That's a good one. Which one is it? Remdesivir. Oh, what the okay. hell does that Rem mean? Remdesivir. Yeah. Uh, yes, you're going to have to explain that. Yeah, uh, remdesivir is the medication that uh, I have no financial interest in. Don't worry. Um, but it's one that... Uh, <laughs> Unlike our president. <laughs> I have no invested stock in what I'm about to say. Yes. Um, and so remdesivir is a, a medication that was uh, repurposed. It was made uh, to fight Ebola and it showed to not be very good against Ebola. But it's made by a pharmaceutical company called Gilead. And what it does is... I have a little schematic here. Uh, basically, can we see this? Can we see these letters? Yeah, I, I can read that. P Q R is that an S D? <laughs> yeah, a, basically letters. What what they are? I'd is like to buy a vowel. <laughs> no, you I'd no, like no to vowels guess left. The phrase. These are you only get these four, only these four. So uh, this is a string of RNA, okay? And this virus is an RNA virus, and how it replicates is it has a, a protein that sits on it, and it basically turns out a second string of this RNA virus and then packages it into another viral capsid and then makes billions of it and then it explodes the cell and moves on to the next one. Basically, remdesivir substitutes one of these little nucleotides, these kind of genetic codes, and puts a big kind of block in it so this protein can't move forward. And so that's how it works. And preliminary studies have shown, Dr. Fauci was talking about it today, in that, uh, 11, in the average amount of time that somebody is sick has decreased from 14 to 11 days and um, less people are getting ill from it to the point where they're considering or they may even have stopped the double arm study, which is some people get placebo, some people get uh, the drug. And once they start seeing there's an efficacy to the drug, it's unethical to keep giving somebody placebo. That makes sense. Remember the, the tenant do no harm. So. If you're giving somebody placebo, you're doing them harm if you know that the drug works. So uh, they haven't released the full data yet, um, but Fauci was talking about it this morning saying, hey, look, it's probably become at this point, it's not perfect, it's not like a cure-all, but uh, 
it, it may help somewhat like Tamiflu helps the flu. Tamiflu does not cure the flu, but it can dampen it um, in a way. And it's the best we have, and it's definitely not as dangerous as it has the uh, side effects of arrhythmia that uh, hydroxychloroquine did and, and what spurred me to write that article. Maleko, you're on mute. Say that word one more time so we can try and see if we can uh, uh, work that into a phrase or two during the uh, show today. <laughs> remdesivir, R-E-M-D-E-S-V-E-R, remdesivir. All right, remdesivir. All right, folks, when you hear the word remdesivir today, mm -hmm. have a drink and uh, try and use it in a sentence at home and impress your, your wife and girlfriends. Not at the yeah. same time. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, they, might all the, they might all be—they might all be quarantining together, Maleko. Who knows? Oh, that would be a tragic state. Can you imagine, Flash, if you had to be quarantined with all the people that you were currently seeing? It'd be a terrible situation. It'd be a very or super fun. It'd be a very confusing situation, I think. <laughs> Especially for them, I imagine. <laughs> are you eating one of the uh, one of those donuts that are now extinct? Oh. He is. He's eating one of those Donettes. He can't talk because he's got a donut in his mouth. Mm -hmm. This is not yep. leech. Oh. Wow, look yeah. at you. you got a giant freaking case of those. All right, so yeah. Dr. O'Carroll, let's talk about what's happening in the hospital. Uh, we, we only know what uh, the lieutenant governor tells us, and he tells us we're doing good. We flattened the curve. Um, mm -hmm. Yesterday, the best news out of the state came out of Kauai, which for 15 days in a row, they haven't had a new case. And then yesterday, their last existing case went home. So as of today, Kauai is the first island in our state that had it, that doesn't have it anymore. This is good news, right? It's terrific news. And I want to applaud everybody for the work they've done. Uh, I, I would slightly correct you, Maleko, and say that it's just not, they don't have any positive cases yet. There could be still some lurking around being asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic. Mm. So, so the cases that aren't confirmed, we'll say then. Yes, yeah. Right. yeah. So I, that's why I want to um, let people know that it's not a time to go out and party and, and you know, do, do things that we used to do. And not, it'll lead us right back to square one and you know, we'll have to close down again. Uh, but what we're seeing in, 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 the, in the hospitals is, yes, people have been doing a great job at, at the social distancing measures and staying at home and wearing masks. And it's, it's definitely smashed our curve down, which is great. And I really, really want to applaud everybody for that. Um, so much so that this is not a phenomenon that's just unique to Hawaii, but um, across the country is that people are maybe taking it, when it comes to obtaining medical care, taking it almost too far and listen to us too well, in the sense that they're terrified to come to the emergency department or, or the doc, their doctors for any care. And so what we're seeing is, you know, decreased rates of uh, heart attacks and strokes, whereas, you know, those are very steady uh, illnesses that happen on a steady basis. And maybe that uh, appendicitis is turning into ruptured appendicitis, whereas we could have caught it a little bit earlier. And when it ruptures, there's a lot more complications. And so, well, I don't want to encourage everybody to flood back to the hospitals. I really want to uh, make sure that people know that if you are worried about any sort of medical illness that you have, please come see us. We are doing the right things to protect you, to protect us. Um, if there is a COVID patient that, that happens to be um, in, the, in the hospitals or at your doctor's office, do try and re obtain remote care first if it's feasible, but don't, don't delay. You know, we're here for you and we're, we want to see you and we don't want to see anything bad happen to you.
there were a lot of people who had elective surgeries that had to postpone those in the middle of all this. I understand some doctors are, are letting those elective surgeries happen. Things, and these, are, these aren't things like breast enlargements, Flash, but I'm talking about like hip replacements, you know, or, uh, or people who might have some back problems. I saw you smiling. I knew what you were thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, that elective surgery should be full steam ahead. Thanks, Flash. All right. Uh, so, Doc, so what's the emergency room like? Is it, are there, I mean, do you still have people coming in who have symptoms or are there, is there still a heightened sense of concern now that we've seen, uh, uh, it, it almost looks like we've passed the peak here, that we're on our way yes. down. So we're, we're aware, and I wouldn't, um, I would still say we're still concerned about it. And uh, I would say our radar is out. And we are still seeing cases here and there, not nearly in the frequency, at least at the hospital I work in. Um, the statewide, we are still seeing cases, but uh, not in the sense of that where our peak was a few weeks ago or a week and a half, um, give or take. So we are seeing it here and there. And, and what that means is, you know, if we were all to just go back to doing what we're doing, we're going to be, <laughs> we're going to end up in quarantine again in like two to three weeks. And so we're going to have to restart the whole process. And so gradually reopening, gradually using the uh, things to our benefit, uh, to keep using your mask when you're outside. That's probably going to be something that's with us for the next year to two years, to be quite honest. Um, and then what I'm really excited about uh, is using um, our knowledge and technological might as a, as a race, the human race and here in Hawaii is that, and, you know, to do contract, contact tracing, you know, an app where, um, you know, the, for those people who are afraid of Big Brother, Big Brother already kind of con figures out where you are and they can contact trace you. But when it comes to this disease, if our phones were all able to talk to each other and say one person had um, had the virus and tested positive for it, and then you, it had pings um, your phone that you were close to them during a symptomatic period or a period where they could have been shedding virus. That will definitely, you know, and tell you, hey, look, you should be like staying home because you were close to, you were within six foot of somebody who was COVID positive. That's not only something that's good for our population here, but is if we could get all of our tourists. To use those and i know general hara has been talking about using ankle bracelets but what does everybody have on them at all times like everybody has this on them at all times so if we could get buy-in for like tourists to all use a an app and there's a lot of tech that's being you know um, apple and android are able to kind of share and talk to each other and then there's a couple of apps out there that it looks like will have the majority of i don't want to call it market share but most end users and so if we get like, hey, look, uh, you know, get our airlines to advertise them as people are coming in, because we do need tourists to come back because they're part of our economy, but they do are going to be carrying the virus, and we're all going to be worried about it. So if we use it both for our communities here and then also our tourist economy, if we can all kind of agree that this is the best for our communities, I think we'll go a long way as well. Didn't um, South Korea, when this all went down, use some sort of through the phone already, a contact trace thing, which means maybe you don't even need an app. You just go to the cell carrier. Uh, yes, they used one that was uh, non-privacy uh, protected. So they would it would blurt out like, uh, like say flash if you caught it, it would blurt out uh, to everyone who's come in contact with you or who lives in your zip code, flash 
is now COVID positive. So it's like a very kind of, I wouldn't mind it if it was me, but some people are very protective about their just health information in general. And it might- Flash, be this could be, this could be very bad for your reputation. This could be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> My reputation well, can only go up at this point. Um, <laughs> that actually brings up a good point because I, I've been thinking and saying for quite some time that I think that there's a stigma around testing positive and I'm concerned with let's say where I work or you know where someone I care about works is that someone that you work with or in close proximity with test positive and doesn't tell everyone else in the building or doesn't tell everyone else in their company so that the company can't even take the proper protocols after that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, strictly from a health perspective, yeah, that's, you know, the asking for more people to get this virus. Um, I think there should be some sort of, uh, and this is uh, uh, probably wading into legalities and uh, HIPAA laws or privacy protection laws that I'm not as knowledgeable about. But from a strict uh, utilitarian and epidemiologic, and like, let's keep this virus down for as long as possible, yes, there should be some sort of reporting and then uh, you have to report uh, it's mandatory. And a virus, uh, an app that would kind of ping people that's been around would help in that. Um, but I agree with you, Flash. Uh, I would be worried about it. So let me ask you a question. Let me play some devil's advocate here. So Apple and Google are already on board. They're already developing uh, uh, API codes to allow developers to come up with a contact tracing application. Uh, and basically what that means is they've opened up their code to allow app developers to come up with uh, some sort of an application that can do exactly what you're talking about. If, if somebody's tested positive, that app would then ping anyone who was in radius of them and could be exposed. Mm -hmm. If something like that is developed, what's to stop anyone from using that technology to find out if, you know, to stalk your ex-girlfriend or to find out, you know, if, okay, well, so-and-so had a, uh, uh, happened to be at a rally that was protesting the, the president, you know, and these are all the people that were there. I mean, how do we, how do we stop this from steamrolling into something bigger? Uh, that's a good question and probably something that uh, I couldn't answer and you'd have to talk to a, one of these API developers and tech developers, but it's all unidentified information, meaning that you can't tell who this was. It's just going to disengage from the identity of the person, but it will ping, and this is my rudimentary understanding, is that it would ping that person that, hey, you were in contact with uh, a COVID positive patient. Yes, there, I think there is a, uh, a logic where if somebody was to hijack that system that they could use it for, for detriment. Um, but I think somebody who's uh, developing these apps, there are many, many safeguards to that. So we have to have a little bit of faith in, in, the, in, you know, in your iPhone maker and your Android yeah. maker that, that they're going to be good. I, in New York City, <laughs> they're, doing, uh, they're hiring people to do this. They're, they're hiring thousands of people to become what they're called contract tracers, contact tracers, which um, it, you know, they're asking questions like journalists would ask. You know, who are you with? Where were you there? You know, why were you there? How long were you there? I mean, it's, it, they're almost reporters as they go into people's lives. Uh, couldn't that be just as effective than an app? I think it would be, it, it's effective. It's a lot slower. It's less, um, less thorough. And um, I think 
if we have tourists that are flocking in and you know if we want to get 30,000 people here um, how do we get their contact information like they're going to be lost in the weeds they're going to be you know doing things that they didn't say that they were going to do their plans are going to change they're going to be unavailable um, so I think there's there's definitely benefits to the personal aspect of like hey somebody's calling you um, but I think the benefits of an app are, are, are far good from a medical perspective and if we really want to smash this curve and we have a terrific opportunity being in an island state that we can kind of control who comes in and who comes out um, I could see us being a testing ground for, for an app like that. Um, so are we testing all incoming passengers now? We make them go through a 14-day quarantine, but can't we just, I mean, there's only 400 people coming in a day. Can't we just test these people when they get off the plane? Uh, theoretically, yes. Um, I don't know if we have the capabilities and a good question to ask um, DOH and those who are working the quarantine stations, but I know that they do. Uh, do symptomatic screenings, but as we all know, like, you could be asymptomatic, right, and, and have this. So, um, you know, 400 is an easy number, I guess, to wrap your head around a day, but then what happens when we start wrapping this up? Sure, 4,000, sure. 10,000, that sort of thing. Uh, well, some people say 400 a day is, is too much and that we shouldn't even be allowing uh, people to fly over here Right now, currently, passengers on airplanes flying over here aren't required to wear a mask. The flight attendants aren't required to wear a mask. There's certain uh, airlines and certain flights where there's no social distancing on the plane, so you could still be sitting in between or next to a stranger. Um, what are your thoughts on just putting a, a much stricter travel ban in place? Or another way to put it is, what would you do when it, when it comes to travel right now if you were in charge? When it comes to travel, I would definitely mandate masks for everybody who's on the plane, whether it be a passenger versus uh, flight attendants, doesn't matter who's coming on, definitely masks. Um, I would, I separate people, um, no middle seat. Um, that would be definitely when it comes to the actual physical traveling part. Uh, when it comes to the amount of tourists coming in, uh, that's a really difficult question. And where are the tourists coming from? Are they coming from, you know, a, a hotspot? Um, are you going to prove, have them prove that they've had this virus before? Are you going to have them prove that they had antibody testing? And that's a possibility if we get that ramped up, um, you know, all right, have an antibody, a negative antibody or a negative PCR that will allow you to get on the plane. But then um, that's also going to hinder people from, from coming here. Do we put a tax on uh, our airlines or a tax on the tickets, an extra 20 bucks to pay for that test? I kind of like that idea, um, but you know, airlines aren't going to buy into that because it's going to increase the rate. The airlines have no tickets. problem packing on fees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, an extra twenty dollars? We, we call it twenty-five. So, we'll keep the extra five. They say. So you're you're as it stands right now, you're you're still okay to let people travel here. I'm not. No, I am not. Uh, I, I would say that in the sense that when we do eventually need to lift lift these travel bans, right? Like our, our economy, part of our economy is, a large part of our economy is, is requires the tourists to come. And uh, we need to open that up at some point. And I'm just trying to figure out, and there's many, many great minds, greater than mine, who are who are thinking night and day about it. I, I admittedly don't think night, night and day about getting people on a plane. 
All right. So moving on from travel, then let's let's talk about the longevity of this. Right now, we're looking at um, we we flatten the curve. Uh, we're going to start to loosen restrictions. We're going to start to let uh, business go back to somewhat of a, of a normal state. Uh, obviously, social distancing and masks and precautions will be in place. But three months down the road, I'm envisioning a Hawaii that's not much different than it was when we started, where people are working just as much as they used to. You've got people that are shopping in malls and all that. They're just wearing masks. Uh, realistically, we know that a second wave is not just likely, but probable. And it's probable that it could be worse than the first wave. So what happens then? Do we, do we go into quarantine again? Do, I mean, do we just go through all of this all over again? I mean, help me out. What's, what's the protocol if this happens, you know, in four months? Sure. Yeah, those are very, very delicate decisions and the more uh, real-time decisions. But I think, I think you're right, uh, Maleko, in that uh, we do have to gradually lift our, um, our restrictions and the mayor and governor have really solid plans for doing those. And I couldn't recite them off, off beat to you, but, you know, leaving our higher risk activities and they stratify them into mild, moderate, high risk activities and the highest, highest risk being, you know, our concerts and our bars where people are going to have a couple of drinks and get too close to each other. And, you know, that's why you go to a bar almost, um, so those would be our highest risk activities. And I don't know how you police social distancing. I wouldn't say police police, but you know, security uh, maintain social distancing in those senses. So I think we're gonna have a very long, I would like to see a long opening and that will prevent us from those secondary curves as well as thorough contact tracing, as well as everybody continuing. I think honestly, handshakes and, and kisses need to go. Uh, until we get a vaccination like that's just those are just really high risk and it's just it's odd I know everybody when they get to a party they want it's just like natural to go give a handshake to your friends and give a hug to your girlfriends that you know and it's just going to be something that we're going to keep have to keep in the back of our minds and until uh, adequate vaccination in mass quantities is produced let me uh interject here flash and and, and dr Carroll I've been quarantine, I've, or I've been in quarantine, I've been self-quarantining myself uh, for about 20 days now. I've been in the house and the only time I've left is for groceries or food. Um, so I don't, I, I haven't had much interaction with other people. Uh, you guys are working still, you're still headed out. Flashes, he's got two or three things on his agenda every day. Are, are you Are you encountering people who are still going for handshakes, still going for hugs and kisses? who aren't wearing masks, who are, you know, just acting like this isn't a thing? Yeah, I would say yes, they are, but not on purpose. It's just an automatic reflex, right? You go, you see somebody, you immediately want to go and you go up, you know, shake the hand, hugs, kisses. Uh, I was at Foodland um, about a week doesn't ago. Touch, doesn't touch flesh. No, yeah, that was ah! <laughs> <laughs> I was at Foodland about a week ago and uh, you know, this, this girl that used to work for me came up to me and she got to within about one foot of me. It's just automatic. She was just on automatic pilot. She sees me, she goes in for the hug and the kiss. And I, I pushed back. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And she's like, oh my God, yeah, that's right. I, I forgot. It's just, I think people aren't doing it um, to be blase about it or disrespectful. I just it's think it's like breathing. 
I mean, I, I don't know, Dr. O'Carroll, if, if you've experienced that same thing, but I don't think people are doing it on purpose. Yeah, I mostly go to, yeah, just, just straight to work and, and back. And um, I'm not uh, handshaking or hugging my, my nurses in text usually ever. So I don't, know, I don't know if that means they don't like me, but it's just not something we do. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's exactly like you said. It's just such, it's ingrained in, in our culture to do it. And, and, and having to take that second thought and that second, second step to, to not engage is uh, takes an effort that we're not used to, um, but it's gonna. I, I would encourage people to continue to do it for until <laughs> until you have a vaccination or you've had this and you've had and even the antibodies tests. To be quite honest, um, all the coronaviruses that we know of that infect humans, there's four benign cold coronaviruses and the two deadly ones, which were SARS and MERS. All of them we can get reinfected with eventually. And you talked about that in the article. I remember you saying yeah. that. Uh, so it's possible that you could have this thing today, and then when flu season hits in, in November and this thing comes back, if it comes back, uh, you could have it again, maybe even yeah. worse? Based on what we know with how we, our bodies react to our prior viruses, the prior coronaviruses, yes, it's possible. We don't know enough. I wish we had a little bit more answers. And even the WHO released, a, and the WHO is one of the premier bodies at collecting all of these, all of the studies that are going on uh, in the world and, and creating blanket statements that really are the best quality data. And they've released a statement that, that was on the 24th, so a couple of days ago, that said, hey, you, we can't, we don't know enough. We can't rely on pure antibody testing to say that you won't get reinfected. And here, here's what I think was the most convincing study is that back the benign human coronaviruses were only discovered in 1960. And they did some studies on them, I think it was in the 90s or two, early 2000s where they got people who had proven antibodies to those benign coronaviruses. Maybe they got infected a couple of years ago, five years ago, who knows? Uh, or maybe it was just a couple of months ago. Um, and they got the amount of antibodies to in their system to those uh, to those viruses, and then they reintroduced that virus to them, and they all got reinfected. If they had a lot of virus uh, antibody in them, they got mild symptoms. If they didn't have many antibodies in them, they got worse symptoms. So just saying antibody present versus antibody not present, in my mind, is not adequate, and that's what all of these rapid tests are doing. We can do titers, which is how much antibody is present, but that's very resource intensive, very expensive, takes a lot longer, um, and is something that uh, we will have to look forward to in the future. Um, but uh, the antibody pa immune passport, uh, what I mentioned in the article, is a false haven, um, could be a false haven, I would say that. Um, you know, when you get the flu, when flu season does come around, some people get it once and that's it. Some people get it two or three times in a season. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I know COVID is like the flu. So let's say I get it um, and then I get better. If I get reinfected again, is, is hey, it- Are you gonna correct him? Are you gonna <laughs> tell him it's not like the flu? No, I mean, it's, it's like- the, <laughs> Thank you, it's like, thank you, <laughs> What I mean is it's like the flu in that you can get it and then you can re-get it again, right? So during flu sure. season, again, I'm using the example in that way, yes, Maleko, it is like the flu. You can get it more than once. And usually in the flu, when you get it a second or a third time, it's not the same strain because you become it's immune to that specific strain of the flu. Now you're, now you're getting infected by a different strain of the flu. 
Um, Isn't COVID it? It's, is, it's not so much like the flu. It's more like it's more like the clap, right? I mean, it, you, you can get it, right? Let's put this into terms that class can understand. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so what's the point of testing all these people free antibodies? It's like, great, you have the antibodies for that one strain of COVID, but that doesn't going to make you imme sure. immune to any other strain of the COVID. I'll, I'll explain a bit. It's the same strain of COVID. It's not a different virus. The, the, you're correct in, in saying that the flu, when you get reinfected, is a different strain of the flu virus. Usually it's either flu A or flu B, but then you've also got, oh, was that a, yep, I saw that. See, thought we'd let we're it all slide. tied. We're all tied here. <laughs> so, yeah, you're correct. So it's usually a flu A or flu B, and there's multiple strains that circulate during flu season of flu. And these are, you can legitimately call different strains, but the coronavirus actually is very stable compared for an RNA virus, uh, which flu is as well. It's remarkably good at copying itself. So you have a very low mutation rate. And so of these, of these letters here, A, A, U, G, and T, there's 30,000 of them in the uh, coronavirus uh, genome. And to date, they've been tracking and they've been making sure that it, what the genome looks like. To date, there's only been about 20 mutations. And considering that in each person that gets infected, there's probably billions, in the number of billions of virus. So I don't know how, if you can extrapolate the amount of people who've had this virus times a billion. Um, the mutation rate is extremely, extremely low. So that's why we're not going to expect the same thing to happen that happened in flu. Oh, there's Alex. No, what's up, Alex? Alex, uh, hang tight. We're going we're gonna to say goodbye to Dr. O'Carroll here. We're going to jump right into conversation with you, but uh, you can listen in. Dr. O'Carroll, before you go, I just want to ask one more question. Um, I felt in January that I had flu-like symptoms. I was, uh, uh, I was in bed for, for a few days, four or five days. Um, it, was, it was a terrible-like flu. I had uh, shortness of breath. I, I, mean, I thought it was my asthma was acting up. I wasn't sure what it was. It was a terrible feeling that lasted a week. I had gotten the flu shot, uh, and the doctor said it was probably just the flu, but we didn't even know about coronavirus then. Mm -hmm. Just recently, I found out that we knew that it's possible the coronavirus could have been in the US longer than we thought. Um, in fact, it may have shown up in Wuhan as early as October, I'm hearing. So what, uh, what's, the, you know, what's the timeline here? And is it possible that some of the people in Hawaii might have actually had it in January or December of last year? It's, I don't want to say it's 100, 100% impossible as you know, things really flipped on its head in in Santa Clara, right? That was where a lot of the studies came from. We're like, oh, wait, we think we had this virus here way back in January now based on epidemiological studies. Um, if we had the virus here all the way back in January, October, it would have it exhibited community transmission much earlier and we would have seen a bigger spike a lot sooner. Um, I think the symptoms you had were more likely related to a flu plus asthma. And if you had a longer course that was say 10, 14, 21 days with flu-like with flu symptoms, I would consider it more to be a possibility. But I, I, that's right in the height of our flu season, January. So I'm gonna say uh, a horse is a horse and a zebra is a zebra and there's a lot more horses out there and call it a flu. Dr. Darrell Carroll, uh, our favorite ER doc, thanks for jumping on the call with us and explaining to us like we're five. Uh, really appreciate it. <laughs>
<laughs> I have, um, uh, I'm sorry, Alex, I have one more quick question for Dr. O'Carroll. Uh, I've been getting this a lot. Um, if, you, if you've been lucky enough to find a mass, you, you typically have to keep it a lot longer than you expect. Just very quickly, walk us through how to clean and sterilize um, a mask that you have to wear every day. Uh, a cloth mask, um, I think. A any that, mask, I mean, any whatever. Mask. Yeah, so a cloth mask you wanna wash um, ideally once a day. Um, if you can't wash it, if you only have one, what, one thing I would recommend is like uh, leaving it on your dashboard or leaving it on a window because we do know that UV light can kill this virus plus heat can kill this virus. But ideally, you wanna have three or four in your, um, in your rotation and rotate those through. And after every day, put, that as, put the one that you use aside, wash it in high heat, lots of soap. If you don't have a washer or a dryer, you can do hand wash and then hang it up outside or hang it in the window or put it in your, uh, on your dashboard. If you're using a surgical mask, generally the rate limiting step in a surgical mask is the ear elastation. Uh, is that a word, elastation? Uh, elastics? Um, the loop jacket. Says it, it's a word. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll go with it. Uh, so generally it becomes loose and your the fit becomes poor. And that's usually the rate limiting step in the, in the surgical masks. Um, those you don't have to wash because washing them will degrade the, the material. And the reason why you want to wash your cloth masks is that they're thick cotton and they can harbor one virus, but two fungi, bacteria, and those sort of things. So that's why you want to wash it more frequently. Thank you so much for your time. I know you got to go. We're going to let you go now. It's been awesome to talk to you. Uh, and we'll look forward to uh, the next time uh, you, you want to drop in or send us another one of those fabulous articles that you wrote. We'll post a link to your article on our website at molecularandflash.com. So Great. Thank you, guys. Be well. Rem, Rem. Remdesver. Remdesver. Remdesivir. Remdesivir. Yeah. Ramadamadam. Dumb. Ramadamadam. All right. Thanks for that. Let's uh, introduce our next guest here. Joining us on the conversation now, uh, he is going to be performing this week. He opens up uh, our third episode of Living Room Live, the new COVID-19 concert relief series that's airing on KITV4 and airing on Island 98.5 and KSSK at iHeartRadio Honolulu. Uh, he's also uh, uh, part of a family that's doing a, a great thing. They're making masks, too. We're going to talk about that as well. Uh, Alex Kawakami is here, everybody. Alex, hello. Hey. Hey. How's it going, guys? It's great. Thanks for dropping in. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you guys through this screen. I wish we were in person. <laughs> yeah, we do, too. You've actually been having some fun. The videos that I've been watching on your social yes. media, uh, man, you are taking advantage of family time. I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm completely exploiting my son uh, for likes and <laughs> follows. No, it was funny. You know, I, when, when this all first started going down, I, it, was, it seemed foreign at the time to do a live stream because I never really did a whole like hour of live streaming anything. So at the time, it was just like, you know, why I, Why not? I'm, I'm bored, We're, no gigs anywhere, so why don't I do it? And I set up outside and I didn't think anything of, you know, my son coming out or my wife dancing or anything. But as the night went on, he just grabbed all his instruments and started bringing them out himself and playing the drums. And it was just something that caught on with everybody. And now he, the, the time I get solo has slowly been whittled down <laughs> the, i think last night i did it was about a song and a half and then he comes up and i'm like all right let's go let's do this 
<laughs> How many instruments does he have? <laughs> I mean, too many. <laughs> he got a lot when he was first born. Everybody gave him, uh, you know, instruments like, um, you know, a toy saxophone, a harmonica, a little ukulele. And then as we, as we uh, watched him around one years old, he started understanding what it all was and what dad was doing. And so he, we gave him a, an ukulele for Christmas and a drum set. And he just, every instrument, he loves playing it and he's understanding it more and more now. He just watches me and he does all the moves that I didn't know I'm doing, but just like, you know, swaying back and <laughs> forth or even with my foot and he just copies it. And so I got to be careful now what I do on stage, <laughs> otherwise he's going to just copy it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. How old's your son now? Uh, he's almost 21 months. So he's going to be two in August. Two years old. Yeah, I watched him, man. He wails on the drums. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good and bad. You know, 7 a.m., I got to keep those drums uh, hidden until about 8 or 9. <laughs> wait, wait, wait another 10 years when he's actually playing the drums. Your neighbors yeah, are yeah. love you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> Tell us so a little I'm, bit, um, Alex, about the, uh, what the Henry Capono Foundation is doing and how, uh, how your family and Foodland is a part of it. Uh, okay, yeah, the um, the Henry Capono Foundation was started a couple of years ago, of course, by Henry and his family and his team. And um, it was started because Henry was always, you know, if I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you guys interact with him a lot, but they're, they're always so giving. And so um, they, they started this foundation to give back to the community and to the music industry, um, really just to give back through music. And so um, they asked me to be uh, a board member last uh, two years ago because um, I'd been working with them for a while. And uh, we've been doing small projects here and there where uh, the community or musicians need some help. And, um, but we, we never really got it off the ground until this year. There was a lot of stuff we had to take care of first. And so when this whole uh, pandemic started um, and we we're realizing that uh, Hawaii was going to be effective, uh, affected. Um, we started seeing gigs being canceled and it was like, you know, it was within like a day, everything just disappeared and, and got worse um, for us over here. So we, uh, we got together and we're discussing what we wanted to do because this was an opportunity for us to give back. It's really what the foundation was for, where, you know, for times like this, but I don't think we realized the, the scope of it at the time. We, we were thinking of giving back a little bit here and there to uh, musicians who need it, but we didn't realize that, I mean, or maybe we just didn't understand that literally every musician in Hawaii was gonna be out of work for a good two to three months. And so we started talking about it and discussing it. And um, my, my family um, started a, uh, a fund for giving uh, way back in the day with my, my grandparents through, um, through Iolani and through some other things. And um, just my, my grandparents were so into giving and my parents and, and passing that down to us, which has been great um, to give back to the community because the community really is, is who we are. And um, the, my, my grandpa specifically was very involved with music and arts. He used to have um, uh, the Sons of Hawaii come to his house and play music because he was really good friends with Eddie Kamai and um, Gabby Pahinui and, and all those old timers that you, you hear a Hawaiian song today and it was probably written by one of them. But he would support them and arts throughout the islands. And so 
um, to me, it was a no-brainer that we use um, any resources that we have to to help the Henry Capona Foundation and then in turn help the musicians here. So we've been accepting applications uh, since April 1st um, for uh, a COVID relief program. And um, it's been overwhelming. Um, you know, we weren't sure how it was going to uh, go over um, if people would even apply. And we saw that... Uh, I mean, uh, numerous musicians and people in the industry applied and we're so happy that we're able to help, but also um, it, it was a little bit eye-opening to see how many people need um, assistance. And so we went through a first round of giving where we gave away $50,000 worth of Foodland gift cards in increments of um, $500. And we that was uh that went through in a few days um less than a week we went through all that wow. and um we but we still had applications coming in and so we switched gears and tried to go through phase two which was to um, get some more donations from community some from friends family um, through other partners that um we could keep on giving and so we i think to to date we've given away uh close to 200 gift cards and we're still trying to um, get get more money and donations to keep it going. Uh, we still have a lot of applications, but um, you know, it's just a small way for us to give back. And um, it seems that the reaction is is pretty grateful. And it's really nice to see that, you know, some somebody like Henry Capono is using his um, power, I guess you can say, his um, connections to really do good here. And it's not surprising because. Um, he's just been always so generous and so giving. Alex, how's the rest of the family? I know uh, uh, you haven't really played as Manoa DNA in a while, mm -hmm. but you know, how's Lloyd? How's how's the rest of the of the musically inclined family that you have? I know you guys are uh, have been doing so much outreach for the community. I mean, what else is going on? Well, the rest of the family is doing well. Um, we're all hanging in there. I mean, we're all in the same boat, so they're you know they're trying to stay sane at home <laughs> but um you know my, my brother's staying busy he uh he technically retired from music partially um a couple of years ago to to focus on real estate and um my my dad is is still um still at Iolani um well not now but you know he's still helping with day-to-day -day. um we we play as Manoa DNA a couple times a month for certain events but um, on the other side with, with Iolani and our, our clothing, uh, when we shut our doors, uh, I think it was March 19th, I think the day was, we uh, decided to close our retail store before it was mandated just to keep our employees safe. And um, as soon as we did that, it was, we were wondering what we were uh, going to do because we couldn't do anything but have online sales of our clothes and uh, we couldn't really manufacture anything. And so... Um, we were kind of in limbo for a while and uh, our designer who retired last year, she, her daughter is a nurse at Queens and they were seeing, you know, around the world, how a lot of hospitals were running out of PPE uh, masks, even the hats and all, all the different equipment. And they didn't want to get stuck with that. So they, uh, they researched this uh, material that most hospitals have. I don't know exactly what it's called, but it's a medical material that is used to sanitize uh, equipment. And they researched that it can actually be used in masks and do pretty good with filtering out germs. 
So our designer um, went home with the, the material and actually made a couple of masks uh, just for them and to test it out. And she asked us if we could make some. And so, of course, we said yes, without even thinking about, you know, the cost or how many they needed. And um, so we got that going and, and they gave us material to make uh, about 2,300, 2,400 masks. And um, so we got going with that and uh, then realized- They sold out pretty quickly, right? Yeah, so we, we were manufacturing them for a while and then we decided to sell the cotton masks made out of our print for the general public in order to uh, supplement the cost for us making these masks and just have it like a one in one, everybody wins, everybody's wow. happy. And uh, we sold out, we released uh, three times, uh, a couple of hundred each time. And the first two times sold out in about 40 minutes. And uh, the third one we did, we had a much bigger lot of inventory and we're almost sold out uh, of those right now. So it was great because everybody was able to get a mask, which they need to wear out, but they also are helping uh, the Queens Medical Center staff by stocking them with um, good PPE stuff. So, you know, it's, it's a time when everybody's got to work together. And I, you know, it's, we're all in the same boat and we're all trying to be creative and do different things, you know, whether you're a musician or uh, you work in a factory or in a store, it's, everybody has to figure out creative ways to stay afloat. And if there's something that you can do, I always think you should do it, you know? Yeah, that's fantastic that you're able to <clears throat> repurpose the factory workers. So you're keeping people employed, you're, you're donating the masks, you're making the money to donate the masks. Uh, you've also got that brand new Iolani Center. Uh, I know the folks over there at uh, Purvey Donuts are still operating. Yes. Uh, <laughs> How's everything else going in that center there? I mean, are the ukulele, I mean, is, is everything still okay there or is everybody still running? It's, um, no, so most of the businesses are uh, shut down or doing bare minimum um, as of now. And it's because of the, the, the city, the mandate just to only essential um, minimum, I forget what they, what they call it, but minimum business operations to keep your business running. So a lot of them are doing that, but <clears throat> Purvey has been up and running. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, we, we put up signage and made sure that everybody respected the social distancing, the takeout. And for the most part, you know, what I've noticed is that for the most part, uh, majority of the community understands and will um, abide by the rules. So they're, they're still going. But like I said, it's, it's tough. It's such a different atmosphere now that you know, Koloha Ukulele and Snack Addicted and Yolani all over there at the Yolani Center got to think creative and not not really just stay put, but think of a way to get out of this and then how to move forward after we're able to all get up and running again. Um, Alex, how many um, gigs in a month do you think that you've lost um, because of this? Um... I would say through <clears throat> April and May, and there's a few in June already that have been canceled. <clears throat> I would say there's about 40, 40 gigs total so far. <clears throat> yeah. Is there any of these government programs that applies to your gig work, to your, to your, um, uh, to recuperating any of that money? I mean, are you able to get an SBA loan or, or do you even, do you, I mean, I know you've got other businesses to support it. I mean, but, like most people in Hawaii, 
all of those things contribute to the Ohana. So it's like, not mm. like you can just give one job up. You yeah. know, I understand. Yeah. Uh, um, <clears throat> yeah, we, um, so for like Iolani, we, we've kept our staff employed this whole time, whether they're working or not. Um, we wanted to make sure that they were taken care of and um, safe and healthy and didn't have to worry too much. Um, we were able to apply for the SBA loans for that. But for music, um, <clears throat> I applied for the, uh, the, the PPP loans and the disaster loan. Just um, I did so, you know, in the beginning, just in case, um, you know, and anything should happen. So, um, <clears throat> but from my experience as well as experience from other musicians is that even though it says independent contractors and self-employed, it's very, very difficult to get a, a PPP loan or any kind of assistance, even unemployment. Um, it, because the, the PPP loan for what we understood was that it's for companies with payroll. So a lot of musicians are <clears throat> either independent contractors or self-employed and they pay other musicians who are the same. So there's no payroll. And so you can't really put down any number that can be accurate if you just look at it. And so um, I know a bunch of people who put in for the PPP SBA assistance as musicians and got rejected immediately. My, my application is still in limbo somewhere because I got it in right before the funds ran out. So there it's on hold, I guess. Um, <clears throat> and then for unemployment, um, a lot of the musicians we work with, they, um, they, they haven't heard back and for a while, although they're starting to get uh, it under control, but, you know, for a month and a half, a lot of them, a lot of us musicians just lost everything, all income yeah. with no assistance anywhere. So yeah, the latest numbers that I saw, a quarter of a million people filed for unemployment, less than a third of them have gotten their unemployment benefits. Uh, and, and even half of those haven't gotten all of their benefits. They've only gotten one or two weeks worth of pay as opposed to the, the five or six weeks that we've been out of work. Um, they're working on it, but it's, it's not just the musicians. It's, it's anyone who's applied for unemployment hasn't seen yeah. the unemployment. Yeah, it's, it's been a roller coaster because in the beginning, they, uh, they announced that um, the unemployment would finally, uh, musicians would finally qualify. And so it was great. And there is the extra funding and everybody was excited. And then um, we found out that it's not that easy. And then when the, the PPP loan SBA guidelines all came out, it said independent contractors and self-employment, uh, self-employed people would qualify. And, you know, to me, it wasn't, I think it was a, a little bit of a head fake. You know, they say, yeah, we're taking care of everybody. But when you go to apply, none of that really, um, none of the criteria that they're asking for really applies to independent contractors. You can't give them all the information you want to. It's hard to really discuss it with an actual person. And so you know, everybody who is an independent contractor, whether you're a musician or not, you're doing anything else, photography, whatever. If you don't have technically a payroll and employees, then you're kind of screwed. Yeah, you're screwed out of it, which is, to me, it's really sad because there's a lot of people who it's hard enough to build up a safety net uh, for if something were to happen for a couple of months. Um, but something like this, you can't control. It's, it's completely out of, out of our hands. So 
to see people who are needing help and, and not able to get the help they need, it's, it's difficult to watch. It's, a, it's more than a couple of months here, too. We were just talking to Dr. O'Carroll, who said that, you know, concerts are high risk, which means it could be a year to 18 months before we even think about a concert. And then what would a social distancing concert look like? I don't know. It would look like a terrible night at the Republic, probably. But, <laughs> yeah. So what's, so are, are, is there a conversation happening with artists? Or are you guys talking about, okay, how do we make money in this new environment? as musicians. I've seen uh, some folks have done, like they put up little PayPal links in their live streams. Some people are using Twitch. Uh, some people have- uh, Virtual have tip jars. Yeah. Uh, other people are using paywalls uh, where they're straight up uh, uh, telling people you have to pay to see the concert. Um, what's the conversation like? What are musicians saying? Well, I think everybody right now is just treading water and trying to be as creative and uh, in their job as possible. So for musicians, um, I've seen everybody trying to do live streams. Um, they do the virtual tip jar. Um, another part of it is uh, teaching. So whether it's songwriting, guitar, or any other instrument, uh, some of the musicians are, are going towards that route doing um, streamed lessons. Um, the, the thing that is going to be the hardest is, like you're saying, you don't really know how long this is going to go. So um, I, I, it's hard to plan, you know, with any, uh, anything else, it, it's, you can plan, you know, that there's ending in sight, but uh, to me, music is going to be the last thing. Live music is going to be the last thing that, that comes back because whether it's a gig in a bar or a restaurant, restaurants are not going to have the money, the budget to, that's the last thing they're going to add is live music. Um, that's it's that's not the case just now that's been the case forever that's the bottom line is if what if something needs to be cut then live music can be cut um, and so now more than ever that's going to be harder to find um, concerts are yeah like you know I next summer maybe so um, music wise I think what I've been seeing is people streaming doing lessons but I've also been seeing that some companies are using musicians to uh, as like a marketing tool. So someone like the Outrigger Hotels um, is using the musicians that they usually have at the Kani Kapila Grill so that when they stream live, um, I'm assuming they're being compensated. I don't know for sure. But when they stream live, it's through Outrigger's Facebook and uh, Instagram so that uh, it's marketing Outrigger still, but helping the musicians. So that's what we've been seeing is um, if anybody has the opportunity to help other companies uh, market while the, the economy is down, that's one way people are still um, generating income, but it's, it's hard. I, I don't know when, when, when there'll be normal gigs again. Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> I personally, was uh, booking over 20 artists, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 artists uh, for various clients for through modern media. And it's like overnight, they're, all their gigs are canceled until whenever. You know, that's yeah. for me, the big concern for musicians is like you said, the last thing to reactivate would be the live entertainment. Just because a restaurant's open doesn't mean they're gonna be booking entertainment five, six, seven days a week again. It's just, it's just not gonna happen. 
Yeah. And, you know, restaurants are already struggling as is. And I'm sure when they're able to open, it's going to be with restrictions to how many people can be in there, which, again, takes takes a hit on their bottom line. And so, you know, sir, I, I think certain places will will bring music back, but on a smaller scale. But in terms of the general uh, community, the music community here, it's going to it's going <laughs> to we're going to take a huge hit. It's it's scary to think, you know, we're going to lose a lot of creative music over the next year with people being able to just play out in public and use, make money at it and then focus on music. Uh, we're going to lose a lot of musicians who are going to need to focus their energy on something else, which is really sad if you think about it. So where and how can people donate uh, to the Henry Capono Foundation to help? Uh, they can go to um, henrycaponofoundation.org. There's a link right when you go to that. There's also information. Uh, we, when, when this all started, we also put uh, a link to information for musicians to apply to other, uh, for other grants or relief, um, different sites, you know, like the Grammy Foundation had something. Um, there's a little bit of information about unemployment and SBA loans. So it's not only for people to donate, which that helps a lot, but for anybody needing other information, henrycaponofoundation.org um, has that all. Awesome. And where Alex, can we follow uh, you at? Oh, uh, sorry, Maleko. You can go on uh, Instagram, Facebook, my website at Alex Kawakami. Um, it's all there. I'm around. <laughs> I definitely follow him on Instagram. Uh, if nothing else, just to watch his newest, youngest band member steal. You got to see this up, guy upstage. Agree. <laughs> well, and by the way, uh, his son is featured prominently in uh, Living Room Live uh, hashtag Aloha Together this Saturday, May second, four p.m. on KITV. It's uh, he's the star of the show. Let's face he it. He is. Yeah. I'm, I'm worried what's gonna happen when gigs do come back and there's like a stage and I'm, I'm having to do an actual gig and he's gonna be like, wait, this whole year I've been practicing with you and you just kick me off to the side. That's just it, man. <laughs> I'll have to see. It's gonna be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Your, your days as a solo artist are over, my friend. Done. So you had two good oh, years. Pop. That's all you get. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alex, thanks right. so much for joining us, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on the show this Saturday, May 2nd, 4 p.m. It debuts on KITV. Uh, the audio will be broadcast on the iHeartRadio local stations, Island 98.5 and KSSK 92.3 FM on Saturday night at 9 p.m., uh, and then uh, both shows are repeated over and over and over again on KITV and their uh, their HD sub-channels as well, or on our website at alohatogetherhawaii.com. Thanks so much for being a part of it. We wish you and your family the best, uh, and we can't wait to see what comes next. Thanks, guys. Take care. I'll see you guys soon. Aloha, Alex.